0: Our broadcast today is part of a series of public lectures at the London School of Economics. We'll be exploring today, key issues relating to policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Susan Scott. I'm a professor in the Department of Management's Faculty of Information Systems and Innovation, and I'll be chairing this event today. A warm welcome to our LSE students, fellow academics, and everybody who's joining us as part of the live audience for this online event. The Department of Management has organized today's session, which will be focusing on data-driven responses to COVID-19, opportunities and limitations. Each of our speakers uh, will make a short presentation and then there will be 45 minutes for Q&A. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. The online event will be recorded and, technical gremlins willing, will be posted with other podcasts in the series on the LSE player, which you can find on our website. As usual, there will be a, an opportunity for you to put your questions to the panelists. So to submit your questions, please use the q and f- feature at the bottom of the screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I'll pose as many as possible to the speakers. When you pose a question, please do let us know your name, your affiliation, and we're particularly keen to hear from our students and our alumni and incoming students. So please let us know if you are uh, a part of our bigger LSE community. With many activities moving online, there's growing pressure to implement a range of data-driven responses As solutions to various COVID-19 concerns. These include contact tracing to address the spread of the disease and the use of AI in the dashboards that allocate health resources to identify and support vulnerable individuals. If global problems require global solutions, what will be the role of data-driven digital innovations in developing a global approach to the pandemic? At a time when faith in politicians is being stretched, we are being asked to put our trust in science and data. What priority should data-driven technologies play within the policies that we're formulating? And post-pandemic, will data-driven technologies assume a more prominent role in policy and practice going forward? What will happen to our data? Data-driven solutions have been proposed, but raised many issues. We have a fine group of panelists, all from the LSE today, who will review the opportunities and limitations of data-driven responses to COVID-19 from a legal, societal, and technical perspective, highlighting the risks of exclusion and discrimination that can arise. We have Sita Pena Gangadharan. An Assistant Professor in the Department of Media and Communications. Welcome, Sita. We have Dr. Aura Linsky, Associate Professor in the Department of Law. Dr. Alison Powell joins us from the Department of Media and Communication and my colleague, Dr. Edgar Whitley, Associate Professor and Reader of Information Systems in the Department of Management's Information Systems and Innovation Faculty. I'm going to invite Ola to begin first. Uh, please, Ola, thank you.
1: Great. Many thanks, Susan. So, um, as the chair has already indicated, um, I'm a lawyer, and so I'm looking at the issue of data driven responses to COVID 19 from a legal perspective, and in particular from a, a fundamental rights perspective. And at the outset, um, one thing to note is that um, unlike um, other areas or other disciplines, when we think of law, thinking of a global response becomes quite difficult, a kind of a unique legal response across the world, because many of the legal frameworks that we're considering are either regional or domestic legal frameworks. And so for my contribution today, I want to think about um, data driven responses to COVID-19 in light of the European Human Rights Framework. So that's the European Convention on Human Rights and also the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. And so just to begin with, I guess it is tried to say that um, the responses of governments to COVID-19 have involved significant limitations to or um, total derogations from many of our fundamental rights. Um, It's a deprivation of liberty to be in lockdown. We've seen serious restrictions on freedom of association, freedom of religion, um, and and many other rights. However, when we think of data-driven responses, I think three particular rights are um, specifically engaged, and these are data protection, privacy, and non-discrimination or equality. The colleagues later are going to talk more speak more to the discriminatory aspects or potential discriminatory aspects of data-driven responses. So I'm going to focus more on privacy and data protection. And in particular, in the context of contact tracing, which has been the major um, data-driven response to COVID-19 so far. And so here, I think, as a starting point, it's necessary to note that these rights, data protection and privacy, are not absolute. Um, the the texts of international legal frameworks recognise that derogation is possible and limitations to these rights are possible when they seek to achieve um, suitable or um, legitimate objectives and they don't go beyond what is necessary to do that. And so, um, contact tracing per se is not incompatible with privacy or the right to data protection. However, where um, The rollout of contact tracing applications or test and trace in a manual context becomes more contentious, is with regard to the safeguards that are put in place in order to protect individual rights to the extent possible while still obtaining the public health benefits of contact tracing. And today, just to kick things off, I want to highlight three dimensions of these safeguards that have proven to be particularly contentious. So we might say that contact tracing might be permissible. It might find a legal basis where there is consent from those who are engaging um, with contact tracing as an application, for instance, or on the basis of public health. So states can invoke a general public health clause to justify contact tracing. However, in so doing, in order to be compatible with fundamental rights, the measures taken need to be necessary in order to achieve the public health objective. And here, even within Europe, um, from the Council of Europe, which is responsible for the European Convention of Human Rights, and the European Union, we see that European courts differ as to how that necessity standard should be interpreted. So the European Court of Justice typically indicates that a measure has to be strictly necessary in order to achieve the stated objective, whereas the Council of Europe gives member states or signatory states a little bit more wiggle room. So the measure has to be somewhat more than useful, somewhat less than indispensable. But for both, what is clear is that in order for a measure not to go beyond what is necessary, safeguards have to be um, clear and precise, and um, they have to be provided for by law. Which brings me to the second issue, which is, the potential need for legislation as a, as a legal footing for contact tracing. And here I mean whether manual contract tracing or um, digital contact tracing via an app. And this has been something that's been particularly contentious in the UK. Um, Those who are um, opposed to introducing legislation, that would include the health secretary, Matt Hancock, would say that the existing data protection framework provides suitable safeguards for individual rights and liberties. However, I think the counter argument and one that I personally would propose is that the existing framework sets out very broadly worded flexible principles that require specification in a given context. So just to give one example at the moment, if we think of something like storage limitation, so that's the idea that when you process somebody's personal information, you um, only store that information for as long as is necessary to achieve achieve the stated objective and you anonymize that data as soon as possible. Well, here, if we look at the NHSX contact tracing apps data protection impact assessment um, the, the quantity or the period of time for which data can be retained is not specified at all. And if we look at the privacy notice that accompanies um, manual contact tracing in the UK, which has been rolled out this morning, we see that data will be retained for 20 years where an individual reports symptoms to um, the NHS. This begs a significant question about whether data retention for that period of time is necessary to achieve the stated objectives. And so you can see how legislation fleshing out how these principles apply in a practical context is desirable. It provides legal certainty to those who are um, complying and um, engaging in uh, engaging with contract tracing um, mechanisms. And um, it ensures and specifies those flexible kind of GDPR principles. Moreover, it is likely to promote trust. So as Harriet Harman, the the chairperson of the Joint Human Rights Committee, has indicated, um, ministerial assurances are simply not sufficient here to um, to get the population on board with contact tracing. So... A second safeguard, a necessary safeguard, I would argue, is is legislation to specify all of these other rights. And then finally, we come to the issue of oversight. And again, this has been quite contentious. Um, In the context of the the digital tracing app, the digital contact tracing app in the UK, following, um, following some pushback after its initial announcement, the government created an ethics advisory board, which is a very welcome development, of course. However, the advisory board's role is just that, advisory. And there's been some kind of consternation expressed from within the advisory board about the fact that its recommendations do not need to be followed by government. However, this does beg the question about oversight in general of how contact tracing will be undertaken. And here, I think this is is a role that could be undertaken by the information commissioner in the UK. However, as colleagues will, I think, discuss, Many of the issues that data-driven responses give rise to can be linked back to data protection law, but some go to issues of digital exclusion, digital discrimination, which arguably go beyond the remit of a data protection commissioner. And Perhaps we can, we can talk about that later on. But well, you can see here, therefore, that there's at least some discussion to be had about who is appropriate um, as a regulator, as an actor, to oversee the compliance with human rights of these data-driven responses to COVID-19. Well, so stop there.
0: Thank you, Ola. Having set the legal landscape, uh, laid the legal landscape out for discussion, I'm going to move to Edgar Whitley uh, to discuss the... Data governance and privacy implications of data-driven technologies from a um, privacy perspective. Over to you, Edgar.
2: Yeah, and I want to kind of follow on, uh, but in a quite different way to uh, all this presentation. Uh, in fact, uh, at this point in time, I, I'm missing a oversight board that I'm involved with uh, in the UK uh, for uh, the has been created as part of the Digital Economy Act, which is overseeing uh, data sharing within government and across government for a range of different activities and particularly this afternoon's meeting is around data sharing to identify and address particular issues around notions of fraud and also around notions of uh, debt. And that experience from These uh, pilot studies that have come before our review board, and it's important to decide what verb you have for your oversight mechanism, advisory versus review. Although again, ultimately our review board makes recommendations to the minister who then makes uh, the final uh, decision. Uh, The review board receives proposals from different parts of government to propose uh, under the Digital Economy Act various forms of data sharing that seek to enhance and address particular kinds of concerns. There's also a second uh, Digital Economy Act board that I'm also involved with which is around public service delivery, so not just fraud and debt but ways to enhance the delivery of, of public services. And what we're finding is that there are really important practical considerations around how data sharing is done in practice. And that's about the quality of the data that each of these different government departments might hold from simple things like, how do you know that you are referring to the same person? uh, The kind of classification of that data when you talk about a household, how is that defined? It might mean very different things for benefits, for health, for council services, et cetera, et cetera. So there is important practical considerations around the different ways that government holds data and how that data sharing can actually operate. So if you take data from, say, Majesty's Revenue and Customs and compare that with data held by the Department for Work and Pensions, or a student loan company or whatever, even on issues like is somebody vulnerable to debt or in the context of COVID more generally vulnerable, how do we ensure that these different government departments are using the same kinds of mechanisms, the same kinds of labels, the same kind of considerations? Because each of these different agencies might have a very different response to the kinds of concerns that that might be found when you do data sharing across government. So what one government department labels as vulnerable might just be a flag about be careful when interacting with them. For another government department, that same notion of vulnerability might mean you have an enhanced duty of care towards that individual. And if you receive data from a different department that says, This person, we believe, is vulnerable, according to our system, that that might then kick in all sorts of additional requirements from other government departments. And, of course, you also have the concerns about the kinds of data protection and privacy issues that you may well find. So even if you don't have a duty of care on receiving that data, you might suddenly discover that someone you know Indirectly, purely through doing your work has been labeled in another government database as being particularly vulnerable or whatever We've seen a version of this that seems to have worked reasonably well, which has been the The 1.5 or so million people in the UK who were defined by their doctors As being clinically extremely vulnerable and they were the ones who were told to shelter and absolutely uh, not go out we're receiving food parcels organized by the local authorities, et cetera. But that's only one definition of vulnerability. And it's one definition, one attribute that particularly as we moved closer to a kind of post-peak pandemic phase, those issues about different kinds of vulnerabilities and how those might be shared uh, across different government departments, and feed into the kinds of decisions that I know that Alison and Sita are going to talk about become incredibly important. And that data is not always of the best quality because historically, we've not needed to rely on it too much or we've relied on the fact that we didn't have legal uh, opportunities to do data sharing that easily. So the fact that our data was not that clean was a bit messy, was perhaps self-reported rather than checked, was much less of an issue. But if you start sharing data in order to address COVID-type responses, then you start introducing all of these additional uh, problems. So there's a whole series of practical considerations that we need to be fully aware of rather than just believing that data is going to save us. And I'll stop at that point.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Edgar, We've had some questions coming through um, about the, the data and privacy issue, which we'll pick up on at the end. I'd like to turn to Alison, uh, if, you if you'd like to make your presentation. Thank you so much.
3: Great. Thank you, Susan. And thank you, colleagues, for the uh, presentations to set the scene here. Um, I'm going to talk specifically about um, data-driven responses and the associated ethical issues. Um, wearing partly my LSE hat and also wearing the hat of, um, that I'm wearing currently as the director of the Just AI uh, Research Network on Data and AI Ethics, which is um, co-hosted with the Ada Lovelace Institute. So I want to talk a bit about um, how data-driven responses are unfolding, and I want to talk about three different technologies and their uh, kind of um, socio-technical implications, including their ethical implications. Um, and these are contact tracing, immunity certification, and the production of data-based dashboards. And what's interesting about all three of these technologies is that um, these are all structured around using data to respond to uh, expanding um, infection and to reduce infection. So they're all driven in certain ways by um, using data to respond to something that we can only see through data, which is, of course, the spread of COVID-19. So this is a really interesting kind of data paradox because we have a, uh, we have the first data-driven pandemic, in a sense. We can't tell how quickly COVID-19 is spreading across an entire population without having quite a lot of data about how it's spreading. And we also can't have any notion of how we are going to respond without having quite a lot of data. And so this is why um, these kinds of technologies of contact tracing, immunity certification, and and the creation of dashboards have become so important because they all respond to the idea of what is is measured is managed. Because decision-making and risk are now prospective and predictive Uh, all of these decisions are made on what data is collected. So in the case of contact tracing, what data is collected is data about um, the positive uh, positive test response, um, which is meant to indicate an infection with COVID-19, and the proximity of a person to another person. Uh, And we can see that contact tracing apps have now been developed and are being tested in many different locations Um, and contact tracing apps only measure these two things. Contact tracing itself is a a knowledge practice that is far more complex than the uh, the, um, collection of these two different kinds of data that occurs in a contact tracing app. And so this is, first of all, this is uh, an interesting um, aspect in and of itself. Um, The second data-driven technology response is is the um, idea of an immunity certification. An immunity certification would combine uh, data on someone's antibody test results and potentially some other demographic information about that person. And once again, uh, immunity certification, this kind of, uh, collection of data is not in itself problematic. Uh, it's the context into which this, um, data, these data-driven technologies is introduced. So, Let's imagine that we have uh, uh, something like um, what what was discussed several months ago, an immunity passport. This sounds really quite sexy. Like, let's have an immunity passport, like an actual passport. It has uh, information about the person's uh, health status. It has information about uh, that verifies their identity. How is this going to be used? Is it going to be required to cross a border? Is it going to be required to go to work? As soon as we start thinking about this, we start thinking about the potential unintended consequences of such uh, a a data-driven technology. What does it mean to say that one is immune to a disease? Would an antibody test suffice? Well, that depends on the validity of the antibody test. These are pieces of data that are taken out of context and put in another context. And that creates a risk because of this non-comparison of different data sets We know already the different data sets that exist within the public sector are uh, difficult to compare. And this um, problem is even more acute when you're looking at comparing data like the result of an antibody test, which has a very specific um, meaning within the medical community and potentially a very different meaning to um, an employer of someone who uh, the employer desperately wants to have back to work um, and the person um, is concerned about their risk to themselves and to others. And the third uh, technology I wanted to talk about is one that hasn't actually been covered as much in the news which is the creation of um, dashboards for decision-making at often regional or state level aggregating all kinds of information, not only about things like um, antibody test results, um, infection test results, and infections themselves, but also information about things like the amount of uh, personal protective equipment held in any hospital stockpile, the number of doctors, nurses, or other healthcare workers who are on staff in a particular location, and the relative locations of need of different kinds of for, for different kinds of labor in different parts of a country. I'm mentioning this because all of these data-driven responses are some, in some ways integrating different kinds of data from many different locations together into technologies that appear to be seamless, but that that conceal a number of relationships between, for example, the state and large technology companies um, and have very, confi- very um, opaque aspects to, the, to their manag- the management of their data. So we now know that there have been a number of um, contracts, including contracts for um, NHSX work, that have been awarded under legislation that suspends the normal contracting regimes um, that usually apply to technologies contracting to the government We know that Palantir, who is associated with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, is one of the companies that's investing in uh, dashboarding um, on behalf of the uh, NHS. And we also know that these uh, are governed by data sharing agreements that apply on many levels and to many different parts of government, as Edgar identified, making it very difficult to create kind of trains of accountability So the story of the data-driven responses then is a story of a kind of apparent solution that we can appeal to because um, technological solutions look like they will be straightforward and they will um, apply equally to everyone. But there's differential risk and potential for harm depending on how one appears in these different um, streams of data. So even when we are thinking about um, the the kinds of data that's that's, uh, collected and acted on to make predictions or to solve problems um, in these three different areas, there's a number of different kinds of data that's left out. So, for example, it's very difficult to um, uh, identify the differential risk of people from different ethnic backgrounds in terms of their risk of infection. Uh, We know that many more black and ethnic minority doctors, for example, have died of COVID-19 than doctors from other ethnic backgrounds. We also know that some of the other consequences of our current situation are not very well measured in the data that's used to develop these kinds of um, data-driven responses. So, for example, lockdown has created spikes in domestic violence and economic harms seem to be accruing more frequently to women who have been furloughed more often and who perform more unpaid work at home. And of course, policing of lockdown measures um, has, has been suggested to be much harsher against black and minority ethnic uh, ethnic communities. I'll make one final point about data that isn't really present in our decision-making as we exit the crisis, so that we can start thinking a little bit about what um, ethical responses we'll, we might want to, um, to employ. And this is that we have seen, the explosion of mutual aid and solidarity networks across the UK. And what's very interesting about these is that there's really not very much data about how these operate, even though they are sites of extraordinary um, commitment and engagement between local communities um, and people that they serve. And in fact, um, we, we do know that there's quite a lot of information sharing between local councils, third sector organizations and mutual aid organizations, which are all organized online. But this is an enormous data gap. Um, And partly this is because this is not data that is collected using the platforms that are already in the kind of corporate and state space. So the kinds of data that Edgar was talking about are now going to be used for crisis response. But in fact, the crisis response has come from elsewhere in areas that we don't know very much about. So, I just want to give a couple of points um, of consideration from a kind of um, ethics perspective, and, and my ethics perspective is a very practical one. Um, and this is that ethical reflection in the age of um, technology driven response concerns both appearance and disappearance within technical decision making models. And and a disappearance from the data should not mean the removal of rights um, because this uh, current and and also disappearance from data currently compounds injustice. Edgar talked about the um, clinically vulnerable list. Many people were left off that list and were therefore left without access to food, some for weeks. So we could have several responses. One could be, let's collect more data. Let's Bring in more data sources to things like contact tracing, immunity certification, or to dashboard more things. And this would, of course, take a top-down perspective. Another response might be to start to look at the interconnections between bottom-up and contextual data information and knowledge. Um, So, for example, to connect data flows and practices of mutual aid organizations and other organizations And a third response is a more radical one and may not be uh, politically viable at this time, but I'll put it out anyway, which is I wonder what a crisis response would look like with a minimum viable datification and an ability to refuse a datified response. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alison. We're now going to turn to Dr. Sita Gangarharan for her presentation. Thank you, Sita.
4: Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Edgar, Orla, and Allison. Um, and thank you to the community that's tuned in um, uh, to this session. um, My name is Sita Peña-Gangadaran. I'm uh, someone who writes about technological refusal um, and who works at the intersection of uh, social, racial, and economic justice issues and thinking about privacy, surveillance, and data profiling. And in the six or seven minutes that I have, um, I want to sort of mix things up a bit um, and actually um, address three points that I think will get us thinking by the end of it, I hope, um, not only about data and data-centric approaches um, to thinking about uh, these issues related to the pandemic and, um, uh, but also thinking about narrative and thinking about story. Um, and to, to, to set us up, um, I want to read a poem, actually, of a colleague, Tawana Petty, that I work with at the Detroit Community Technology Project in the United States, um, who's been at the front lines of thinking about data-driven technologies and their impacts on marginalized communities in Detroit and um, across the country. And the poem is um, about being watched and still dying, I used to think tears cleansed the soul of trauma unbearable. I've been drowning my face in salt water for days, rubbing eyelids raw beneath coveted tissues, gripped by anxiety, but still holding on. What's to come of a tomorrow where sorrow is weaved between fingers that can no longer touch, where the air is thickened by soot and virus. Someday they'll stop lying to us till then we survive. City pride on our shoulders, dodging bulldozers and shutoffs, school closings and roadblocks to our elevation, we've been countering narratives for decades. Brilliance and black in full comeback resistance, insisting our humanity be seen through our lenses. Detroiters are visionary, even in grief, forced to find visibility when folks continue to sleep on our significance. We are the portal to freedom at River's Edge, Against all odds, we let the world know we're still here. I begin with that poem partly because I recognize that this panel is about uh, data-driven technologies and the COVID-19 response, but I think it's really important to um, further contextualize and build upon what some of my colleagues have shared, but really further contextualize um, how this response is playing out in many communities ec- ec- especially um, marginalized communities, not only in the United Kingdom or the United States, but across the globe. Um, and the three points that I want to make, I think, partly address some of the intersectionality and context sensitization that Alison Powell um, just raised. Um, and I think it's really important to give a sort of um, sort of experiential or sort of uh lived understanding of what's happening in in communities where the COVID response and the data-driven response may have not only differential impacts, but um, long-term consequences for how certain people and certain populations are included meaningfully in society and how they're excluded in society. So, the first point that I want to make is that we... um, have very clearly entered into a state of hyper-surveillance, not just by the state, but also private actors. And in keeping with histories of oppression, this is going to hit marginalized communities, um, racial and ethnic minority communities, the hardest. And for decades, scholars like Oscar Gandhi have been saying things such as, the rise of data-driven technologies will exacerbate existing inequalities we're now at a peak point um, where the problems of entrenched, for example, entrenched institutional racism are in lockstep with technologies of control. Um, We could call it a sort of paroxysmal paroxysmal attack, right? A paroxysm um, that's happening, a sudden intensification of surveillance in our communities. And while I think there's a, a... Uh, sort of um, an inclination to sort of adjust to this new normal, I think for many members of marginalized communities, this is a traumatic experience. Um, So, for example, in the United Kingdom, um, Kids of Color, which um, uh, is run by Roxy Lagan, a racial justice group, has been keeping um, watch on an uptick of racial profiling um, that has happened during the lockdown. And I think both Allison and Edgar have uh, um, alluded to this. And they've noted that, um, you know, while, for example, um, the narrative around breaking lockdown um, has at least up until this recent scandal with Dominic Cummings has been sort of more celebratory, right? If you're going to break the lockdown for, um, the, for VE day, um, somehow that's more socially acceptable than helping out, um, you know, an elder in your community or congregating for, um, the reason of, um, a, a religious reason, right? That the narrative around, uh, which ones of these kinds of uh, practices is acceptable is highly differential. At the same time, kids of color has noted that um, there has been an uptick in um, police abuse and violence. Um, You know, a Manchester black man was arrested for moving something in his garden. Uh, um, A black man at a petrol station who had a toddler in his arms um, and was tasered by the police. As soon as he put, um, his child down, right? This is the context in which a sort of intensified form of surveillance is taking place. And I think if if the lockdown has taught us anything, it's that, again, this sort of lockstep between institutionalized forms of oppression and surveillance is happening. Now, I think this brings um, me to a second point, which is, uh, which I think my colleagues have addressed as well, uh, which is when we turn to data-driven technologies for solutions, right? When we rely on modeling, we, when we revo- rely on sort of these predictive models, um, uh, we are entrenching the power Of private actors that sustain and support these technologies and the infrastructures to which they belong. And doing so fundamentally re renders the very terms of democracy and democratic institutions. Once you're collaborating with Apple and Google or other companies at the scale that you are, right, that um, means that. There is a different sense of accountability that um, or the terms of accountability have changed. And this refers to, I think, what um, colleagues in the Netherlands and in Canada, um, Roald Dhabi, Seda Gersis, and Martha Poon have referred to as the the problems and the powers of computational infrastructure. Um, So, I'm deeply concerned with how quickly we seem to have accepted a society that um, in which almost everything we do will have to be technologically mediated. And I worry that um, the, the sort of propping up of this meta infrastructure that is now indispensable and inextricable from democratic institutions that govern us, that, that states have become more accountable to them than the other way around. Um, And just to give you uh, a sense of um, this idea of computational infrastructures, Dabi, Gersis, and Poon write that we're seeing a rise of categorically distinct type of infrastructure, something that is replacing what we used to think of as information and communication technologies, but is different. This second category of infrastructure, i.e. computational infrastructure, can be deployed onto common infrastructures to automate and augment workflows and management. So I concur with these authors and argue that the power of computational infrastructure um, is one that subverts the very principles of public infrastructure, common good and collective welfare. When you're a trillion dollar company, you don't really have to worry about those things when maintaining market dominance is a priority. Now to the third point and really quickly, and I I hope we have more time to discuss this. um, As Alison brought up um, in terms of solidarity, um, and in my own writing on technological refusal, I think given the terms and conditions have changed in a datafied society, um, that we are going to absolutely see more and more um, ways in which communities, collectivities, groups are rethinking and reinventing collective action and civil disobedience, for example, to data driven responses. Um, and that is already happening on a small scale. Allison mentioned uh, mutual aid societies. But I think specifically in relation to some of the problems that I've identified, right, racial profiling or discriminatory racial profiling, there have been attempts. Again, um, kids of color in the UK has, um, as have many other civil society organizations um, across Europe, have been thinking about how do we document, say, the disparate, amount of um, fines that have uh, been given out to members of uh, Black and minority ethnic populations, right? How do we document that? How do we capture that? How do we create bodies of evidence that actually demonstrate the incompleteness of the data-driven technologies or the technologies of surveillance that are put into place that are meant to, for example, keep us healthy? So in that um, spirit, I hope that we can think more broadly about data-driven technologies in relation to the larger contexts and the larger histories in which they're deployed and think about how, in specific, these are tying in with histories of oppression and marginalization. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Sita, for uh, that in- impassioned uh, presentation in which you remind us that we are talking about data-driven technicians in our context of suffering, of global suffering, and uh, that, it, that this is not a suffering that's being born uh, with equity, that it is impacting some uh, communities and individuals uh, more than others. And that that's something we should be very cognizant of in our, in our discussion, in our comments, in our reflections uh, of this issue. So thank you very much. We've had a number of questions uh, flowing in. Let me um, thank the speakers and now ask them to respond to those questions. Uh, I'm clustering them in the following ways. We've had questions about how the rights of individuals should be put to one side to p- protect the many, um, which you know many of those who are grieving and want to, to stop uh, the dying uh, will feel very very strongly about. We've had questions about best practice and the role of organisations in ensuring effective global practice, and technopolitics. Uh, Cita touched on this, and and it's something that I think we need to return to: technopolitics and the concentration of data markets, as well as the dependence our dependence on the infrastructures. And a question um, that was put to all the panelists that we'll, um, we'll we'll move to after I've read out some of the questions about whether you would use the app so let me um, let me read out some of the um, specific questions. The first one is from Andrew Booth, who asks if data is anonymized, then why does it matter, how long it's kept for, and why can, and why is consent required?" for anonymized data given the benefits to others, surely. It's better to get on with contact tracing rather than delaying further and seeing more deaths. Who would like to speak to that? Edgar. The,
2: the big challenge is that claims that data is anonymized essentially are untrue and increasingly untrue. You may remove the identifiers from particular data sets but uh, increasingly when you combine it with multiple other data sets, it's always or it's increasingly likely that you will be able to re-identify the individual. So as a starting point saying, oh, it's going to be anonymized and therefore it's going to be fine. Personally, I find a very, very problematic uh, starting point because there's time and time again, the different kinds of data sets that you can combine and that allow you to re-identify the data. It also becomes very context dependent. This is where we have this international issue. Some versions of contact tracing are trying to be relatively uh, anonymous uh, because it is just the data going off to a server of the devices that have been nearby. In the UK, the current plan is that once you self-report that you have symptoms, then the data is specifically linked to you, probably linked to your health records, et etc. Et so anonymization doesn't work. Uh, it shouldn't be relied upon because it's gonna be incredibly easy to do that. If you are keeping the data for the next 20 years, then you have much more likelihood of accidental or deliberate re-identification. Uh, consent, I take much more as an ethical issue rather than as a data protection law kind of issue. So you should just ask someone, we're going to use your data in these kinds of ways. Are you happy with us uh, doing that? So there's a, a number of bits to, to unpick. And I think Cita wants to take, take take on next.
4: Yeah, I'll just add really quickly so we can get more questions in. that. Um, I think trust is really important to mention here. Um, you know, with an increase in surveillance, I think, es- especially for certain populations, there is a, a, a radical decrease in public trust and trust in government. And that has long and lasting effects for um, governments to protect collective welfare. So I think that's really important to mention. I'll try and anchor that with uh, uh, reference to uh, the Taiwanese Example where, um, as I understand, uh, after SARS um, and the pas- the passage of the C- Communicable Disease Control Act helped pave the way for this sort of um, uh, increase in public or trust in government. Right, that then in the current uh, COVID nineteen pandemic has seen uh, civic technologists. Um, in collaboration with citizen Taiwanese citizens and uh, the government, doing um, uh, having a lot of success with their digital contact tracing. Um, so that aspect of trust is is incredibly critical to how any type of data driven policy might be implemented.
0: I'm going to pick up on that uh, uh, with this question from. Um, Rajesh Falakhet from India. Why are we approaching the issue of government collecting data differently than private companies doing it? Location tracing is admittedly done by Google and many other digital companies, especially when there's a greater public good in contact tracing. Always public benefit should override individual rights. Did you want to follow up?
4: I mean, I I agree with that, right? I think there is a real danger that um, technology companies, you know, they they might, um, and I'm sure that Orla can speak to this in greater detail, but right, that there's certainly a concern that private actors will... make it a challenge, for example, for governments to use and analyze data in the ways that they think will serve the public um, interest or collective welfare. And um, I I don't know if tech companies actually have um, created the conditions for us to trust them thus far, so I'm not sure why we would trust them moving forward.
0: Okay, okay. Alison, did you want to come in on that, or shall I give you another question? Yeah,
3: I was just going to follow up on that, and I was going to say that um, in the current situation in the UK, uh, in in regards to um, the three technologies I talked about, um, one of the things that's a characteristic of all of them is that they all re- um, rest upon a very large integration of both government and corporate data collection, and this is a this is an issue. Because the channels of accountability are beginning to collapse and the channels of accountability that we would use to um, make uh, governments uh, accountable to the data that they collect about their citizens don't apply to their commercial partners. Um, and as I said, you know, many of the data sharing agreements, uh, even the ones that I was able to locate that relate to these three technologies, are multi-layered, very opaque, and have, in some cases, uh, very vague end dates. So this is an increasing concern because it suggests that there's. Some seeding of the territory from government actors to commercial actors, and as CETA says, uh, there's very little Im- indication that we should trust these actors because we have to remember that their business model uh, is to, uh, to continue to um, derive new products based on the data that they currently have. And the more data they currently have, the more they are likely to be able to control um, kind of future um, products that we will buy or even services that we are able to access um, as per our rights as citizens.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I, I want to now set up this, you know, this, there's a clear tension coming through in the questions that, that I want to try and um, by putting two questions together, see if we can treat as a theme. The first question is from Simon Rushton, who says, we talk about rights of association, religion, and movement. However, it seems to me pointed uh, that the right to life and health, for example, not getting infected by someone and dying, surely trumps those other rights. The example that he gives is uh, driving while drunk, which used to be considered a right, and uh, you were told just to use your common sense. In the 90s, we realized this was silly and uh, that we could stop people from dying and protect others. And he says, this is how democracies work, rules to protect others from our bad decisions, and wants to know how the the panelists would like to respond to that. And I'd like to follow that up with a question from one of our alumni, uh, Simeon Duckworth, LSE alumni, welcome, who says, What has the COVID pandemic revealed about the impact of concentration in data markets? Have Google, Facebook and Apple made too much or too little data available? What could they or we have done better? Orla, would you like to speak?
1: I'll have a go. So um, with regard to the first question, I I, I think it's a false trade off um, to say that we can have the right to life and we can have public health or we can have other rights like privacy, freedom of association, freedom of religion. Um, and so, you know, in that example that was given, we might say the um, ability to drunk drive was certainly never a right. It was maybe something that wasn't sanctioned with the coercive power of the state, but it was never it was never enshrined in an international human rights instrument. It has never been legally recognised as a right. And so we have recognised um, legally with international consensus that rights like privacy, data protection, freedom from discrimination um, merit protection and so the aim here is to continue to protect these rights without hindering the kind of functionality of public health responses and that means saying that certain technologies from a legal perspective and we might question whether or not the law goes far enough here but from a legal perspective they might be permissible provided they respect safeguards so my gripe here is not um, with the, the use per se of various um, data-driven responses to COVID-19, although I completely take the point that you know, bottom-up responses may be more effective and that's a conversation that should be had. But rather from a legal perspective, I think the query is about ensuring that um, the measures that we are taking do actually just respect the law. Um, so that you don't retain data for longer than is necessary. And I completely concur with Edgar when it comes to, you know, the idea of, um, you know, if you've consented to personal data processing, is that sufficient to hold personal data indefinitely? Well, I would say not because the data might not be fully anonymized. And here, you know, if we look at the the privacy notice of the NHS, we see that there's no guarantee or no um, mention of anonymization in in the privacy notice when it comes to data retained. Um, So that data should be anonymized as soon as possible, you know, once its utility for public health purposes has been served. And also consent here might be a bit of a, well, a bit of a false target insofar as As um, other colleagues have explained very eloquently, data doesn't just relate to one individual, it can often relate to a community. So we need to be thinking of kind of collective forms of consent rather than one individual indicating that they would be happy to provide their data, irrespective of the fact that that data reveals um, information about others and also has gaps about other uh, other individuals and other communities. So I think um, that would be my response in relation to the the rights-based question, that this is a false trade-off. We should be seeking both. And then in relation I think it's a great question around data concentration er, and uh, the concentration of power in data-driven markets and I think here what um, the crisis reflects um, and I think there'll be time for kind of further consideration of this down the line but is the fact that governments find themselves strategically dependent on big tech and I think Alison and Sita both um, mentioned that in their presentations that the public-private divide has completely um, fallen away here. And so that no longer makes sense even from a public perspective, from a, a legal perspective to speak of that public-private divide. We have big tech actors embedded in national or in domestic and um, state data processing practices. And the key thing is that we ensure the accountability and visibility of that involvement. And, you know, I, I think that will, will be a
0: big issue. Thank you. Other comments? We have a question from Eldred Herrington, a senior research fellow of medicine at Queen Mary University of London. Thank you for your question. Where have you seen best practice in terms of data management, security, privacy, and duty of care either here or internationally? So we've talked about, you know, some of the floor lines, some of the problems that we've observed, but where have where have the panelists seen what we might think of as as best practice or better practice? Edgar?
2: So one of the interesting uh ones in just in terms of contact tracing was Australia where they introduced the the technology alongside a set of legislative instruments that kind of controlled and puts in place at least some of those kinds of uh concern considerations that Paula has been Uh, Talking about. I think uh, it's also not yet the case where we can definitively point to things that have worked well and things that have not worked so well. So we're seeing today that South Korea is suddenly seeing an increase in uh, infections again, and that has been for the last two or three weeks or two or three lifetimes ago, as it seems. Uh, very much the place that seemed to have got a lot of that contact tracing, track and trace at right, and yet this pandemic seems to still be causing uh, further problems. So it's less a case of we've got definite, this is a great example that everybody should be following, and rather these seem like sensible things that people are doing and let's see how they work out because we've only been in this space for just over five months in total across the globe. The idea that we have embedded and implemented successful strategies that are definitely going to work for every single kind of response, whether it's a loss of public trust uh, in following the rules, a re-evaluation of collective good versus individual need or whatever it might be, I don't think we're at a position where we can sensibly say this is definitely a model that everybody should be following. Alison.
3: I mean I agree with you Edgar I'm I I, I it's far too early for us to be uh, to be in best practice mode for all of those things which are very complex. However, I would just like to point at some historical learnings we might wish to take um because uh one of the consequences of the um lockdown was that it provided um, a potential opportunity for HIV transmission to be virtually eradicated in the UK. And actually, HIV um, as a public health issue Um, developed quite a lot of expertise among public health um, uh, colleagues, including in contact tracing. And so it might be worth, again, as we sort of figure out how to address these various interrelated issues, to be thinking a little bit like outside of our current framework and look to places where people have been successful. Um, It was never imagined at the height of the um, HIV AIDS crisis in the late 80s and early 90s that we would ever be in a position where this disease was, was uh, the disease transmission was um, virtually completely stopped.
0: Thank you. And continuing with this kind of role of, um, uh, you know, the kind of practices that we're observing, and the role that policy can play, I'd like to pass on a question from Sudesna Mukherjee in the UK, it's been 20 years since the UK and Europe have had data protection laws. What about other countries where there's not clarity on sunsetting of the data collected? Can the UN agencies help in standardising the data protection process?
1: I guess that's one for me. So what we've seen over the past decade or so is that globally there's been a huge increase in the number of countries worldwide enacting data protection laws. So we have kind of over 100 data protection laws enacted nationally across the world. However, at international level, at UN level, data protection is an issue around which it's very hard to get consensus Um, because you have states approaching um, surveillance and surveillance of their population in very different ways, but also because you have such differing attitudes towards freedom of expression and how freedom of expression relates to data protection and privacy. So this is not necessarily an area where I would see the UN playing a particularly strong role. But that's not my area of expertise, I must say. Edgar, did you want to speak to the
0: the different legislation in different countries or the different privacy regulations?
2: so so i don't think that the un is going to ride to the rescue of us particularly with the us being particularly critical of large numbers of of un uh, agencies so we're back to that broader uh, international politics as much as anything else Um, but we certainly have experiences and guidelines and best practice and lots of the debates that have gone on about how do you specify what kind of sunset clauses, how do you oversee, etc. So if you are trying to introduce new forms of response, there is at least a good set of examples that can be drawn upon. And one of the really interesting things to see is how widespread the spirit, shall we say, of GDPR has spread as a template a policy laundering you take you, you ought to have a law about data protection you ought to have a law about pandemic data let's take one that somebody else has you has developed and um, apply it tweak it but hopefully at least getting some of those uh, kinds of principles the other thing of course to remember is that the, the gdpr that we have which is the outcome of a very very intense lobbying process is a lot weaker than it was at the very beginning. So it's seen as this savior for us, but it's the outcome of lots and lots of corporate lobbying. So it's good, but it could have been an awful lot better.
4: Yeah, Um, Sita. I'll just put this out here as a kind of uh, new idea. Um, But, you know, I think that um, it'd be curious to try and learn from Amazon's contact tracing program, and/or the contact tracing program that warehouse workers in at Amazon have put into place. So I know, for example, United for Respect, which is a worker rights organization based in the United States, um, they have launched a contact tracing app for their workers. And I think that it would be really interesting to learn from that community um, for a variety of intersectional reasons. But um, yeah, it'll be actually fascinating to see how um, private companies uh, think about contact tracing within the context of the workplace.
2: And and of course, although Sita was kind of implying it, the private corporation has conflicting uh, goals. They want to keep their workers healthy, but they also want them to be able to work, whereas at least governments primarily have a public health goal and then a societal economic goal as well. Uh, and we're seeing certainly in the UK that tension between stopping the disease from spreading and the economy from collapsing uh, as well. And the pressures within political parties as to where the emphasis should be. How much health risk do you accept in order to rebuild the the, the economic uh, foundations
0: of the country i'm going to ask this question of the panelists uh on behalf of roy metropolis from london and and then i'm going to move on to ask um a question posed by an alumna about the um you know the huge opportunities perhaps as academics we feel it's our job to challenge to ask questions to uh, fully examine the, the strengths and limitations but um there is a, a huge uh of course um, will to produce change and to use whatever tools we have and there's there's a there's a question about that so let me start with um roy metropolis's question uh, who would like to ask the question the question to the panel if they would personally install the nhsx contract contact tracking application and if no what would need to happen for them to get the necessary confidence in order to install it personally,
2: Edgar? So I think it's it's an interesting and slightly um, disambiguous kind of question. Uh, installing the app, uh, other than potential battery uh, life uh, issues, isn't actually sorry installing and running. So we need to be precise. Install it, downloading, installing, and running the app is the relatively straightforward part no harm to you whatsoever because uh, certainly for the uk version the data is kept on your device that's under your control the interesting dilemma arises if you uh come down with symptoms if you think you have caught covid in your walk to the shops or whatever it might be and i think that's the where the questions of Reading carefully what's going to happen with your data, uh, whether the app is going to be, how well the app is going to be tied in with the physical contact tracing that they are going to be doing. If you phone up the NHS and say, I think I've got symptoms, can I have a test? And they then want to say, well, who have you been interacting with? I think that becomes the more uh, important uh, question. So, in terms of the question that was asked, yes, I'm happy to download it in terms of, will I press submit my data via the app? I suspect it would be no different than if I had symptoms and I wanted a test to know whether I actually had the disease and I found up the NHS, um, but I'm not at that position so I've not had to think through the practicalities of, of that decision for myself.
0: Alison. Awesome.
3: So I I'm at the risk of being an annoying academic. I want to turn the question around a different way um, because I don't think it matters very much whether I download and use this app because as the, the given my particular demographic situation apart from the neighborhood that I live in um, the risk of of the risk to me in terms of a financial penalty or uh, an increased amount of discrimination in regards to my um, access to public services or to work is fairly minimal The you know, it, it, with any data that's shared either to the NHS or to um, whoever gets access to all the data that the app produces, which is both the NHS and some other actors. It's not exactly clear which ones those are or will be in the future. Um, I'm more concerned about the um, overall, differential harms that different people in my neighborhood, for example, might experience as a result of using this app as a community, because I live in a neighborhood that has lots of people who are on, in, have insecure employment or who are getting benefits, um, who are um, from ethnic minority communities and who are living in intergenerational households. And all of these factors um, are, factors that increase uh, the risk of overall harm from sharing data through these apps, including different kinds of harm that come from contact tracing apps, perhaps not recognizing complex family situations. Um, It's crowded in my neighborhood, so um, there are Also concerns about proximity tracking, uh, using Bluetooth, um, producing kinds of false relationships between people who haven't been in contact, but whose phones are inevitably close to each other. So these are some of the concerns I have with um, contact tracing apps. I don't have very many concerns with contact tracing um, as an overall knowledge practice. I really want to make sure that that's clear. I think contact tracing is the only way to stop the spread of this kind of infection. But contact tracing does not require this kind of app. And there's a number of different information architectures and different knowledge practices that you can introduce to make contact tracing uh, account for the risks that I just identified.
4: Um I will answer the question personally, which is, uh, I would most certainly rely on the phone-based contact tracing um, program. I don't actually have a UK smartphone that's functional. Uh, So there you have it. I may be in the same category as many other um, people. Um, And I I just want to underscore that um, while I, I recognize that time is of the essence, I also feel like um, we we may need to take our time in order to learn more things. That doesn't mean inaction, uh, you know, time for inaction. It means that, um, that setting the expectation for a sort of radical, you know, silver bullet solution to all of this is, it seems really unlikely. And so I, I um, think that it will take some time to understand the epidemiology of uh, COVID-19. I think it'll take some time um, for for the debate, for example, on public trust, to take uh, to unfold and develop. I think, um, you know, there, there's uh, while I have. Um, absolute faith in uh the scientists that are on the front lines of doing the research i know that they're under enormous pressures so i am i guess personally happy to bide my time and then rely on the infrastructure that is being built to sort of you know track and trace um, and also to help people adjust to this new way of uh, social so uh interacting and socializing um,
1: so um, I might just integrate very quickly that um, you know I, I agree with Alison here that it's not really about whether I download the app because I'm I'm relatively confident my employer is not going to compel me to show the app every morning before I go into work for instance my immigration status is quite clear so if this data is repurposed at a at a later date and um, that is less likely to affect me individually. Um, So uh, for me, however, in order to fully support and endorse the app, I would love to see safeguards against that kind of compulsion um, enshrined in law and also the safeguards that individuals receive from from data protection and privacy law um, specified in a legislative framework, because that is, I think, the really the only kind of cast iron guarantee that we will get that this this data processing won't be kind of repurposed for for, for other uses down the line.
0: Thank you. Uh, Sita, please,
4: If I could just add something which I think relates to um, what I had said earlier about Taiwan and I, I'm uh, scanning the Q&A and I see there's actually a question from somebody from Taiwan and um, about shortening the time it takes um, to sort of deal with all of this. And um, I would say that I um, I am excited about and hopeful for um, sort of local organizing around public health that I think will augment and um, aid in the process of contact tracing, that 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 sort of local, localized way of engaging in um, uh, the, the crisis of a pandemic is going to become um, far more important.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. There's, um, we're, we're almost out of time, but there's, there's a number of questions that uh, we, we still, I hope we would get to. But in particular, I want to highlight this one from LSE, alumna uh vivian grundy an alumna in paris france He says i feel we're overlooking the opportunities of data-driven responses in modernizing policy uh keeping in mind concerns over data protection and privacy how can we use the crisis as a springboard for um modernization and lots of interest Sita, in your um example from amazon perhaps people can follow that up with you later but um this debate will continue and we are we are out of time. I would like to uh, just say what a great pleasure it has been to have the opportunity to listen to the panelists. I think all of you will agree that um, it, it was a great um, discussion. Thank you so much for taking part. We're grateful you could find the time in your busy schedule to join us. So thank you to the speakers. Thank you to the technical staff. The next event is tomorrow, Friday. 29th at between 2 and 3.30, organized by LSE Ideas. It's COVID-19 economic response, a comparative cross-border perspective. But for now, from us, thank you very much and goodbye.